Well, today is Pentecost, marking that wonderful day in the Christian calendar where the Holy Spirit was given. In just a few moments, we'll be delving into the Word of God and learning how the Spirit was given and learning how that applies to our own lives today. But for just a moment, let me pause and remind you that next week we'll be starting a brand new 10-part series in the letter of 1 Timothy. We're going to learn how the gospel shaped the church in 1 Timothy and then we're going to see the principles in that church that were set that now shape the 21st century church. So do come back next week as we start a brand new series in the letter of 1 Timothy. But today is Pentecost, so where do we begin? What passage do we head to to learn about the Holy Spirit and to learn what happened on that special Pentecost day? Well, most of us would head straight to Acts chapter 2, and we will get there. But for the start of this message, let us head to John chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible, John's Gospel is in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's also the fourth account telling us the life and ministry of Jesus. And we look in John 14 and verse 16, we read, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 13, in the early verses of chapter 14, Jesus had told the disciples that he was going to leave them. Yes, he was going to die, but this was not what Jesus was referring to. He was indeed referring to his burial, resurrection and ascension into heaven. And this news troubled the disciples, for if Jesus was leaving, they would no longer have their leader, their rabbi, their teacher. They would be left alone. But Jesus reassures them in John 14 that they need not fear or be anxious, for they're not going to be left alone. Here in John 14, we learn that as Jesus ascends into heaven, having completed his work on the cross, he will seek from the Father to send a replacement. And that replacement would be the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth. Specifically, the Holy Spirit would be given to believers in Christ. And with Jesus defining the Spirit as a helper, the disciples would have been comforted by this knowledge. As followers of Jesus, they would be given a helper after Jesus had left. Further to this, we have John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This Spirit, sent by God, would help the disciples and all believers in Christ to not only understand the ways of God, but to be able to put them into practice each day. And it's important we see this, that the Spirit promised to the disciples, given by the Father, and promised for all Christ followers, would help, teach, and guide. Therefore, the disciples need not worry that Jesus would no longer walk with them on the earth, for the Father had a plan, and that plan was the Holy Spirit. Now, as we fast forward from John 14, we have the trial, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The whole process really serving to strengthen the faith of the disciples and proving that there was victory found in Christ Jesus. But what of this promised Holy Spirit? How is God going to fulfill the promise to send the helper, the teacher and the guide, the one known as the Holy Spirit? Well, to understand this, we do indeed jump into Acts chapter 2, where we pick up 
the story after the ascension of Jesus, who now sits at the right-hand side of the Father, interceding for us and preparing for us our eternal home. So go ahead, grab those Bibles again, get them turned to Acts chapter 2, and we're really going to camp out in this passage for the rest of the message. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We read that all the apostles were gathered together, specifically in one place. Now we're a bit unsure as to where that one place actually was. Some would suggest the upper room, because Acts 1.13 reads that they stayed in this room. However, Luke 24.53, the final verse of the Gospel account, suggests that they were continually in the temple blessing God. Although the precise location is unclear, the timing is absolute. This was the day of Pentecost. The Greek word here is Pentecostos. It literally means 50th. That is because Pentecost occurred in the middle of three annual Jewish feasts and was called the Feast of Harvest. It celebrated the completed harvest. This feast took place 50 days after the Passover feast. Therefore, it became known as Pentecostos, the 50th celebration. Later, it also took on a meaning from history. Pentecostos has strong links to Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. It was at this mount in Exodus 20 that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. The significance is that it happened 50 days after the great exodus of Egypt. So Pentecostos became the celebration of the blessing of harvest and the giving of God's holy commandments. Now over the next three verses in Acts 2, we learn of three specific things that happened on this specific Pentecost that made it different from all others. This 50th celebration would be marked in the history books for three things would happen. A sound, a sight, and many words. We find out about these in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Here, Luke, the writer of Acts, uses the word suddenly. This was a surprise. It was unexpected and it shocked the apostles. A mighty rushing wind filled the house. It was more than a gust. It was a gale force wind ripping through the house, filling each room. However, notice one thing. They didn't see it, nor did they feel it, but they heard it. This was a sound. The apostles heard a great rushing wind. It was loud and it took them by surprise. Symbolically, this great wind represented power. This was the power that the disciples had been promised that would equip them to do the work of Jesus. Verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Having heard the sound, they now saw the next phenomenon. Tongues of fire appeared. We don't know where they came from. Maybe they just came in with this great rushing wind. However, suddenly and again taking the apostles by surprise, tongues of fire appeared. More specifically and significantly, they rested on the apostles. This wasn't just happening around them, it was happening to them. They were experiencing the phenomenon, not just spectating it. Symbolically though, the fire represented purity. And we learn that fire brings about purity in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The fire symbolised a purity, and notice where it would occur, on the mouths or the tongues of the apostles. I think this is really interesting to note, as in the words of Campbell Morgan, tongues can be set on fire by heaven or by hell. Words and the motive behind them can either be pure or wicked. And yes, we see in Isaiah that the fire was used to purify. However, consider James 3.6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Our tongues or our words and language can be a force of wickedness if set on fire by hell. However, in this situation in Acts 2, they're being purified by fire. The key difference is where it's coming from. This purification is coming from God. So we have a sound and we have a great sight. So what of the many words? Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Each apostle was filled with the Spirit. We'll come on to what that means to each one of us in a few moments. For now, the phenomenon that they experienced was the ability to speak, not just in their own tongue or their own language, but in other tongues, meaning other languages. It wasn't necessarily that they were multilingual, rather that the Spirit gave them this ability. Having received power and being made pure, symbolically, this third event shows us the universal nature of the message. The words spoken were not just for one nationality or race of people. All would have equal opportunity to hear and understand. And we learnt this last week, didn't we, in the Great Commission series, in the Great Commission talk, in the Mark series, that the gospel is for all people without distinction. Throughout the next verses... The sound and the sight are almost completely forgotten and the concentration is on these tongues. It might be that the first two prepared for the tongues or it might be that it's the only one that was seen by others. Let's continue and find out in verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. At this time in Jerusalem, there was a crowd of Jews that were serious and devout Jews. They were not from Jerusalem, but had travelled and stayed in Jerusalem. This is likely because of the multiple feasts, specifically Passover. Upon hearing the multiple tongues or languages, the people came together. Now notice, they didn't come together at the sound of the mighty wind. Rather, they came together at the sound of their languages being spoken. What caused them to come together was that all of these people from various places were bewildered and confused that they were hearing their own language or their own mother tongue in a foreign city of Jerusalem. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Notice they weren't in fear, rather they were astounded at what they were seeing and hearing. What was surprising is the fact that they were hearing their own language. Now nearly all there would have spoken Aramaic or Greek or even some Hebrew. 
If the apostles simply wanted to get a message across, they would only need to touch these three languages to get that message across. So the people were drawn in at this odd moment. How are these Galileans who ultimately speak Greek and Aramaic are now speaking our own native tongue? And not just how, but why are they doing it? Verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This was truly an international crowd coming from 15 different locations. Therefore, we have a minimum of 15 dialects and languages, maybe even more when we dial into each specific area. And we need to make sure, however, we don't get completely lost in this miracle, that we forget what they were actually hearing. Sure, they heard their own language, but look at what the message was. The mighty works of God. The gospel accounts tell us all of what Jesus had done and taught. Now the apostles, gifted by the Spirit, were sharing to a multinational, multiracial, multilingual crowd the wonders of Jesus and the great gospel of salvation by the name of Jesus Christ. Through these individuals, hearing the works of God, the message of the gospel would then spread beyond all imagination because they would then go back to their home countries, their home cities, and share what they had seen and heard. So this was an energetic fuel moment where the gospel was fueled into the further ends of the earth. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. There's always two ways to react. Many are amazed and perplexed, and they do indeed ask the right questions. What does this mean? What does it mean that the Spirit has given this power? What does the message of the works of God mean? What is the gospel? What is happening before our eyes? Their amazement made them curious, and as they became more curious of the gospel, we later read in Acts 2 that the Apostle Peter preaches this absolutely amazing sermon, and thousands come to know Jesus as personal Lord and Saviour. However, some mocked what they said, labelling it as nothing more than men drunk on strong new wine. In so doing, these individuals reject both the Spirit and the message of the gospel. But rather than being ignorant people mocking the Word of God, let us ourselves be curious and ask ourselves, what exactly, exactly happened here? What happened on this special day of Pentecostos? Why was this Pentecost different from all previous Pentecosts? And why do we remember it with such significance today? Firstly, to help us, let me consider and let me tell you what didn't happen. Sometimes we need to take it in reverse. What didn't happen will help us see what did happen. So first and foremost, they were not drunk. Peter responds to the accusation of drunkenness in verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It is nine in the morning. Even if the apostles had drunk wine, it would be highly unusual at this time in the morning that they'd be so drunk that they could uh, somehow string a sentence together. How can those consumed by the Spirit be out of control in their drinking habits. This would go against everything we know of the Spirit. These men were not drunk. They were self-controlled, filled with the Spirit individuals. 
For as it says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the first thing we know is that what didn't happen was this was not a pile of apostles getting drunk on new wine. Secondly, it was not a miracle of hearing. Some have argued that the crowd hearing the words was the miracle, that the apostles did indeed speak Aramaic and Greek, and that the miracle was that the crowd heard those words in their own language. Yet we're clearly told in verse 4 that the apostles spoke these many languages. The miracle is not in the hearing, rather it's in the speaking. Just because something in the Bible seems unbelievable doesn't give us the right to change the passage or bring a prejudice to it. The miracle was in the speaking of multiple languages to multiple nations. Thirdly, it was not incoherent muttering. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the matter of spiritual tongues is addressed, stating that the gift of speaking tongues is given by the Spirit and the gift of interpreting those tongues is also given by the Spirit. It needs an interpretation because it is completely different language that no other person knows or understands. It is the language of God. Paul then in chapter 14 goes on to discuss all the proper use of this gift. Now, some have argued that Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 are one in the same thing. That Acts 2 gives way to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and shows a pattern of speaking in tongues. However, we need to be careful not to draw parallels that are not there in the text. Take the Acts 2 occurrence. It is public. The whole crowd hears it. It is intelligible. The crowd hears their own native language. And therefore, it's ultimately a sign to the whole church that the gospel is to stretch far and wide across the nations. Now take the occurrences of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. The tongue is private and it's needing an interpreter. Paul discourages the whole church to speak in such tongues, unlike the apostles in Acts 2, as how might unbelievers ever understand what is happening? Where in Acts 2, both believers and unbelievers understand what they hear. They are drawn to ask the question of meaning or they're led astray by the wickedness of their heart. And we can therefore state what then actually does happen. What we find is that Acts 2 is the only passage that extensively describes the speaking in tongues, the environment that it occurs in, and the explanation of tongues spoken. It is not a muttering or something that needs translated. It's a miracle of a multilingual magnitude. It is a supernatural ability to speak the gospel truth in multiple languages so that the gospel would go across all nations. The Tower of Babel in the Old Testament where God brought about the scattering of the people and multiple languages has now been reversed. Through the gospel, God is going to bring about all the scattered people back together and language would no longer be a barrier. Now, before getting on into applying this to our own situations and lives, there is one final question that tends to come up about the Holy Spirit. Is there a difference between being filled by the Spirit, which we see in Acts 2, and being baptised by the Spirit? In Acts 1.5, we read the words of Jesus, For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here Jesus states that the apostles will be baptised with the Spirit. Yet in Acts 2.4 we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Really the question that many ask is whether or not these are two baptisms that are separate, one in Christ, one in the Spirit, or whether they are a single baptism and this is one event. 
Let me say this. The Father sent Jesus. Jesus completes the work of the cross and then the Spirit equips the church. There is no baptism, no true discipleship unless we're baptised in the Father, Son and Spirit. Upon being baptised as a believer in Christ, declaring your faith in Jesus and your allegiance to him, you are then fully baptised. There's no further baptisms that can occur. For you receive the Spirit upon salvation in Jesus. This is exactly what Peter says at the tail end of the great sermon in Acts 2, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then notice, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now some may quote in a kind of counter argument Acts 19, stating that some had believed in Jesus and had been baptised yet had not yet been baptised in the Spirit. However, we learn from that passage that they had never even heard of the Spirit. They'd never been taught the full gospel message of the Father, Son and Spirit. Their baptism was incomplete because they had failed to hear the full gospel. The giving of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and then the giving of the Spirit. In Paul leading them to Jesus, truly giving them the gospel, they were found to be saved and granted the Spirit. All this really is backed up by Ezekiel 36 and from verse 25. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, too often in the Christian world, we have thrown about the baptism of the spirit as some form of elite Christian status. Yet so often it shows our improper understanding of the scripture. If you are a Christian, you have been baptised in the Father, Son and Spirit. Ephesians 4 from verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. However, that does not mean that there are not specific individual divine moments where believers are specifically filled with the Spirit. We see this in Acts 2 at that first filling of the disciples, but we see it throughout Acts. Acts 4.8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 9.17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God through the Spirit will divinely choose when his workers need a special filling, further equipping them for the task at hand. We remember the words of A.W. Tozer, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Pentecost is a day where we celebrate that triune God, that God that is alive and active, that we have a new spirit within us that guides us and equips us to do the work of the gospel. It's a day where we celebrate the promises of God fulfilled and it's a day where we come together as the family of God unified in declaring our worship for Jesus. For the Spirit teaches us about Jesus, helps us remember about Jesus and guides us to live a life for Jesus. Again, even though we are talking about the Spirit, it is still all about Jesus. So with all that said, 
what specific applications can we bring to this week? With understanding from the passage now, we want to apply, therefore live through the wisdom of God. We want to see our lives changed and developed, our faiths grown, as we now understand the word of God a little bit more. So here are four fairly short and quick things to remember this week. Firstly, the Spirit helps. When we go back to John 14, Jesus was clear. The Spirit was sent to help. And when we consider Acts 2, we see that the Spirit helped the apostles speak different languages to spread the gospel. The fundamental lesson for each of us this week is that the Spirit has been given to help us. Andrew Murray writes, when we pray for the Spirit's help, we will simply fall at the Lord's feet in our weakness. There we will find the victory and power that comes from his love. We are weak. We struggle with sin, with doubt and with fear. Yet we have not been left alone. Our eternal Father has provided help through the Spirit. It is in the Holy Spirit that we're given power and guided to victory. So what is it that you need help for today or for this week? Are you struggling with your battle in anxiety? Are you fearful over death or illness? Are you scared to be bold for the name of Jesus? The Spirit will help you. And what comfort we gain from knowing that we're never alone and that we never face a difficulty alone. The Spirit of God supports us, helps us, guides us, sustains us through each trial. So simply put, ask the Spirit for help and you will be granted help. Secondly, the Spirit teaches. At Lincoln Baptist, we believe in the teaching of God's Word. It's built into our vision to grow disciples. It's built into our values to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. It's built out in our every week for our services, our meetings, our studies are centred around the Word of God. We saw that today in John 14, the Spirit will teach us all things. It is the Spirit that takes the words we find in the Bible and helps us understand them, bringing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Samuel Chadwick, a Methodist minister in the early 1900s, said, The man who thinks he can know the word of God by mere intellectual study is greatly deceived. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. We cannot go to the word of God with a self-centred approach, thinking if we just read and read and read, it will all make sense. It is through the Spirit that we are taught and given understanding of the spiritual elements of the Word of God. What does this mean this week? Well, in your daily devotions, in your approach to reading the Bible, in your listening of podcasts and sermons, seek the Spirit and ask the Spirit to help you understand. More than that, don't lift the authority of the pastor, the leader, the speaker higher than that of the Spirit. For it's the Spirit that brings about understanding wisdom, not the speaker. And so each sermon should be fueled by the Spirit and helped by the Spirit to bring about understanding. So the Spirit helps us and teaches us. Thirdly, the Spirit retains. Forgetting often leads to a negative. Forgetting someone's name leads to that embarrassing moment where you have to ask about their name again. Forgetting a task that needs done usually means a panic later on in the day. Forgetting a life lesson tends to mean that we walk into a painful situation that we could have avoided. But forgetting on a biblical level has immense consequences. The disciples didn't understand and forgot the words of Jesus when he told them he would rise from the dead. And this led to days of sorrow and fear. In John 14, we learn that the Holy Spirit helps us remember, helps us retain 
but it's not just for memory's sake. When you remember, you can apply. When you remember there's victory in Jesus, you can apply it to your life. When you remember that Jesus promised you salvation through faith in him, you can apply it to your life. When you remember the Lord declared us children of God, coerced to the throne and citizens of heaven, through the cross of Christ, we can apply it to our lives. The Holy Spirit helps you remember the promises of God and the dangers of Satan. What do you need to remember this week? That Jesus loves you? That he'll protect you? That he will hold you? That you are special to God? That sin might be creeping in? That the devil seeks to destroy you? And the Bible is God's word? Just as you ask the Spirit for help, just as you ask the Spirit for understanding, ask the Spirit to remind you of Jesus and his word. As it says in Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Ask the Spirit to store up the word of God in your heart so that you would not sin against God. So the Spirit helps us, teaches us, reminds us. Fourth and finally, the Spirit boosts. A little bit odd, isn't it? The Spirit boosts. How can we escape, though, the incredible moment of Acts 2 when the apostles do something beyond their ability and understanding? How can we miss that these ordinary men were used in incredible ways? How can we avoid that the gospel exploded across the nations after this one moment? The key is this. It was all done by the Spirit. The Spirit brings a divine boost not for the sake of these men, but for the sake of the glory of God. It is in these moments that we as the humble servants of God get the opportunity to be used by God in special ways. It is the spirit that brings boldness in the face of adversity, comfort in trial, incredible faith in moments of persecutions, words when there's no words that can be found and guidance to the right place at the right time for the sake of the gospel. Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us go into this week with anticipation that the Spirit will help us, the Spirit will teach us, the Spirit will remind us, and most powerfully, bring divine touches and divine moments to our lives, not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of the glory of God. Friends, let us be the people of God, the people of the Father who loved us enough to send Jesus. The people of Jesus who died for us, providing new life. And finally, the people of the Spirit who energises our life for the sake of the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day of Pentecost. We thank you that we live by the Spirit, that the Spirit lives in us, that the Spirit dwells within us, that the Spirit teaches us and helps us and guides us and reminds us and supports us. And there's moments in our life where the Spirit divinely touches us so that you gain great glory as something incredible and significant happens. And Father, we pray that we would live each day by the Spirit, that we would not be tempted to live by ourselves on our own in our way of thinking, thinking that we can somehow muster our way through life in this world. Father, we thank you that you are the triune God, the Father that loved us, the Son that died for us, the Spirit that energises us. And Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power, that many would hear the gospel as it explodes across the nation in this online season, so that your kingdom would expand, that your glory would be evident in this world. And Father, we pray that as your people, we would be content, filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with humility as we get to be used by the Father 
through the Spirit for his great glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.